and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 20th through Tuesday, the 25th, feature guest conductor Christian Thielemann leading a program of but one work, Anton Bruckner's Symphony No. 8. The work lasts about one hour, 23 minutes. And here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Bruckner 8th Symphony. When Bruckner's Seventh Symphony received a tremendous ovation at its Leipzig premiere in 1884, it looked as if the tide had turned at last. Bruckner, now 60, was enjoying his first taste of success after years of neglect, rejection, the Vienna Philharmonic refused outright to play his first three symphonies, and repeated failure. With this work, Bruckner found an important new champion in conductor Hermann Levy, who led the Munich premiere a few months later to great acclaim. Even Vienna, Bruckner's normally unsympathetic hometown, was won over by the new symphony. The composer was called to the stage four or five times after each movement. Success followed success as the symphony was performed in major music centers over the next several months. The American premiere was given in Chicago by Theodore Thomas and his orchestra in July 1886. In October 1887, after more than three years of work, Bruckner sent a brand new C minor symphony off to Hermann Levy, certain that he would agree that this was even more impressive than the Seventh Symphony and that he would be honored to conduct the first performance. But Levy did not know what to make of a work so vast and daring, and he sent word through Bruckner's student, Josef Schalk, that it needed to be rewritten. Bruckner was devastated. Levy's rejection threw him completely off balance. The joys and successes of the previous three years were quickly forgotten, and the composer plunged into a serious depression. Bruckner had known crippling insecurity throughout his life, but now he was consumed by a new wave of doubt, unable to continue work on the projected symphony that would posthumously become his ninth. He began to rip apart the C minor symphony instead, and he also revamped several earlier works, including his first three symphonies. It can be argued that much of Bruckner's revision of his Eighth Symphony made for a better piece of music, but there's no telling how deeply he suffered in the process. Furthermore, if he had left the Eighth alone, he might have finished the Ninth. Serious renovation of the Eighth Symphony began in March 1889, starting with the Adagio, and continued for the rest of the year. The comments Bruckner added to the last page of the score tell the tale. First movement, finally revised from November 1889 to January 1890. Last note, written on January 29th. And then, Vienna, February 10th, 1890, entirely finished. And still again, March 10th, entirely finished. And even though the work actually was entirely finished at that point, Bruckner probably still didn't really believe it. The first performance was to take place in Mannheim under the baton of Felix Weingartner, who began rehearsals in March 1891. Bruckner was apprehensive. How does it sound, he wrote from Vienna. I do recommend to you to shorten the finale severely, as is indicated. It would be much too long and is valid only for later times and for a circle of friends and connoisseurs. Weingartner got cold feet, and the premiere was canceled. 
The Eighth Symphony was finally performed for the first time in Vienna in December 1892 under Hans Richter. The critic, Eduard Hanslick, who seldom had a good thing to say about Bruckner, wrote a predictable review full of phrases like unrelieved gloom, but he also reported tumultuous acclamations, waving handkerchiefs, innumerous calls, laurel wreaths, and so forth. No doubt whatever for Bruckner, the concert was a triumph. Even Vienna had become a circle of friends and connoisseurs, much to Bruckner's surprise. The Viennese had never known what to make of Anton Bruckner with his country manners, severe Prussian haircut, and perilously baggy suits. Bruckner favored wide pant legs because they made it easier to reach the organ pedals. Beethoven, once mistakenly arrested as a vagrant, had already proved how little appearance has to do with musical greatness. But Bruckner was a more serious misfit in Viennese society. He lacked the necessary skill for chit-chat, and when he spoke, he often said the wrong thing. When his idol, Wagner, died in 1883, he could barely string together two perfunctory sentences to send off to the composer's widow, Cosima. Music was his real language. When, at 67, he was named a doctor of philosophy at the University of Vienna, he told the Rector Magnificus, I cannot find the words to thank you as I would wish, but if there were an organ here, I could tell you. When Bruckner's Eighth Symphony was played in Vienna, the same people who had often snickered behind his back now listened as he spoke to them with an almost inhuman eloquence, and this time they did not laugh. Bruckner's Eighth is the largest of his completed symphonies. It begins quietly, in the same rhythm that opens Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, although Beethoven would never have dreamed of starting so far from the symphony's announced key of C minor, nor would he have made the journey last so long. Getting used to the pace of a Bruckner symphony was hard, even in leisurely 19th century Vienna, where stopping for afternoon coffee sometimes actually took all afternoon. There are first movements by Beethoven as long as this one, but they are so full of energy and so tightly packed with events that they pass like lightning. Bruckner writes music that takes its time and demands that we submit ourselves to it. He would not understand the person who, finding himself in a great Gothic cathedral, buys a postcard rather than take the 30-minute tour. He never tired of standing in the great transept at St. Florian, the towering masterpiece of Baroque architecture just down the road from his birthplace. The first movement of Bruckner's Eighth Symphony suggests the architecture of sonata form. Three big themes are exhibited, developed in a masterful way, and returned later somehow fresher for the experience. At the beginning, Bruckner approaches C minor from the odd perspective of B-flat minor and then settles into a series of holding patterns from which C minor is visible but not yet accessible. There is a powerful stillness at the center of Bruckner's music, something for which Beethoven and even Wagner had not prepared us. The development section, for example, begins from a point of almost total silence and inertia, and Bruckner generates momentum slowly. A number of big, brassy climaxes merely collapse, as if from a loss of nerve. After the last flare of chords, the music stops, 
leaving a few desolate reminders of previous themes and the repeated beat of the timpani. Bruckner calls this the Totenuhr, the clock in a room where someone is dying, a death watch. Bruckner did not explain why he placed the powerful, driven scherzo next, contrary to custom, and one cannot guess his plan until he lays out the extraordinary expanse of an adagio just before the finale. The scherzo, in the meantime, is brilliant dance music of the most serious kind, achieved by ingenious repetition and a bold use of color. The trio, in contrast, is lyrical, tender, reflective, and delicately scored. Bruckner uses the harp, here and in the following adagio for the only time in his career. The Viennese, who sat spellbound by this great noble adagio, surely never looked at Bruckner the same way again. They must have been shocked that this undistinguished man, utterly at a loss in the world they so stylishly inhabited, understood things which cannot be put into words. Perhaps this is the music Dr. Adolf Exner, the rector at the University of Vienna, had in mind when bestowing the honorary doctorate on Bruckner in 1891. He said, Where science must come to a halt, where its progress is barred by insurmountable barriers, there begins the realm of art, which knows how to express that which will ever remain a closed book to scientific knowledge. The adagio, the longest slow movement in symphonic music at the time, is one of Bruckner's most remarkable creations, and it strides confidently into a world where music rarely ventures. Bruckner had little to say about this eloquent and expressive music, having said it all in the notes on the page, but he did admit to occasional echoes of the Siegfried leitmotif from Wagner's Ring of the Nibelung. Bruckner shakes us firmly by the shoulders at the start of the finale and then launches a fierce and powerful theme for the brass. From there, the finale moves steadily, but not without difficulty, toward the moment when C major slowly emerges. A number of episodes and themes intervene, including a warmly lyrical melody in the strings and an eloquent chorale tune. The music frequently comes to a total stop, not from inertia, but to gather strength. As Bruckner himself once told conductor Artemikisch, I must take a breath when I am about to say something of importance. Finally, the horns, remembering the opening notes of the scherzo, announce the imminent arrival of C major. That moment is crowned by the simultaneous reappearance of the main themes of all four movements, which blend together, united at last, by the notes of the C major scale. A footnote on Bruckner's music in Chicago. The Chicago Symphony originally planned to play Bruckner's Eighth Symphony in January 1897, the first time Bruckner's name appeared on the orchestra's schedule, but at the last minute switched to Symphony No. 4, quote, a work in which his idiosyncrasies are not so pronounced as to stand in the way of its ready appreciation, unquote. In the words of an official, it was another 50 years before we got around to number eight, the last of the nine to find its place on Chicago Symphony programs. Program notes by Philip Husher on Bruckner's Symphony Number no. Eight. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.